Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura, and today I am going to attempt a summary of our discussion of Hour 7 in Learn the Bible in 24 Hours by Chuck Missler. Our discussion began by highlighting the fact that the people of Israel were asking for a king for the wrong reasons, in the wrong way, and at the wrong time, um, according to the ways of the world, and, and going along with the idea that they were doing what was right in their eyes. They wanted a king now. They wanted a king for the power that it would get them as a nation, and in seems like it, because it would require less of them as individuals having faith in God to protect them. They were not going to be patient with God's plan, and this was compared to the promises that were made to Abraham and Sarah, and they also took things into their own hand, as you remember, and the result was Ishmael. The fact that the word clamoring was used to describe the way they are asking for a king, how the nation of Israel was asking for a king, shows that it was somewhere between a mob and a whiny child. They said they wanted to be like the other nations, and the point was brought up that God brings unity by love, not by conformity. They wanted conformity with the other nations and conformity to their own nation through the means that a king would use, in spite of the advice they were given that it wouldn't work out well. It was noted with some compassion that the people of the Old Testament, even though many of them um, had the kind of faith that was attributed to them as righteousness, and that's talked about over and over with Abraham, for instance, they did not have the Holy Spirit given to them the same way that the Bible records the Holy Spirit being given to those who are born again by belief in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. A large portion of this section was dedicated to pointing out the establishment of what is called the Davidic Covenant, of God establishing his promises and his plans for having someone descended from David on the throne in the future and for perpetuity. People appreciated the wording that Chuck Missler used here, that God is crisp, precise, and deliberate, and that was rephrased some to point out that God knows the whole plot of the story ahead of time. He knows what will happen next. Along the way, the failures of the first king that the nation of Israel got, Saul, were uh, talked about, and in particular, Agag was highlighted as someone that Saul was supposed to kill but didn't, and that Agag was an ancestor for Haman, who was the wicked guy in the story of Esther. But in spite of all of that, God uses that for good for the nation of Israel in the long run. Part of the point there being that God provides deliverance and victory in our lives in spite of the fact that people don't do things right or mess up. Along the same line, we talk about talked about that when we do make mistakes, that 
there is a difference between conviction as of the Holy Spirit and shame as of the devil or the world system or our own um, misguided evaluation of what is going on. So shame is the result of religion, control, manipulation. It doesn't offer any hope, but conviction is supposed to produce positive results. That's the idea behind it. And it is a gateway, if you will, into guidance. God is not about shaming us just so he can say you're bad and make himself feel better. Any action he takes is an attempt to help us to proceed in the right direction. Then we talked about knowing in the mind versus knowing in the spirit or by the spirit. You can know the Bible or religious rituals in an academic way, but that's not what the intent or what God's intent is for all of this. His intent is to know in a relational type of way. He wants us to know him. As such, it gets back to the idea that in the garden, there were trees and there were choices, because in order to have a relationship, both parties have to have a choice in taking that on and entering into it. This idea was further developed along the lines that people are often looking for answers to spiritual things, to questions of life in um, an esoteric way, like they're somehow out there uh, to be found uh, little individual pieces, when the answer really is to know God, that he is the answer. At this point, Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 was brought up as it highlights the fact that there is no New Testament law that now that we have Christ, we walk in the Spirit, and it is in the knowing Him that we learn and know the other things that we need to do and understand. The goal always was to give us the Spirit, to enable us, to bring us closer to Him. Again, highlighting the fact that there is a simplicity and a freedom in living by the Spirit versus living by legalism, the law, or religious ritual. Then talking about the Holy Spirit, we got into a bit of a discussion about what does it mean to grieve the Spirit or what does it mean to quench the Spirit? Now, it is in Ephesians 4.30 that Paul talks about grieving the Spirit, and it is in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that it talks about quenching the Spirit. So let me read those to you in context. Let me start with verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4, and I am reading from the World English Bible. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their hearts. They, having become callous, gave themselves up to lust to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you didn't learn Christ that way. If indeed you heard him and were taught in him, even as truth is in Jesus, that you put away, as concerning your former way of life, the old man that grows corrupt after the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, who in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, putting away falsehood, speak truth, each one with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and don't sin. 
Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, and don't give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, producing his with his hands something that is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for building others up as the need may be, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, outcry, and slander be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God also in Christ forgave you. So the context there is basically how people mature in Christ as they grow and walk with Him. And it's not a sense of you are being condemned because you might have caused grief for the Holy Spirit, but it is an interesting measurement of the fact that you have relationship with the Holy Spirit, that He can be grieved at all, but also similar to a parent, He can be disappointed with certain decisions you make, but still have hope and guide you along the way. Now let me read a section from First Thessalonians around quenching the Spirit, and I will begin with verse 1. It's a fairly short chapter. But concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need that anything be written to you. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. For when they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them like birth pains on a pregnant woman. Then they will in no way escape. But you, brothers, aren't in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night nor to darkness. So then let's not sleep as the rest do, but let's watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night, and those who are drunk are drunk in the night. But since we belong to the day, let's be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God didn't appoint us to wrath but to the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, exhort one another and build each other up, even as you also do. But we beg you, brothers, to know those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to respect and honor them in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves, we exhort you, brothers. Admonish the disorderly, encourage the faint-hearted, support the weak, be patient toward all. See that no one returns evil for evil to anyone, but always follow after that which is good for one another and for all. Always rejoice, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus toward you. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things and hold firmly that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I solemnly command you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the holy brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.
Now, again, in this section, this admonition, don't quench the spirit, is given in a very encouraging context and also in the context that God is working these things in us. You could kind of liken it to having a discussion with a spouse or a very close friend, and you can tell there's something important that they want to tell you, but you keep interrupting them and you won't let them talk. And then so you don't hear their wisdom, you don't hear their encouragement because you're so busy filling up the space with everything you want to say. Someone gave the analogy of all of us being pianos and God is playing us, but some of us have sticky keys and he's trying to play us, but he's a patient player. And as he discovers which keys are sticky, he will work on them and then he will be able to play the tune much more grandly, much more beautifully and smoothly. Getting back to the idea of grief, uh, grieving the spirit, someone looked up the Greek words and where else those Greek words are used and how they are translated. So the same Greek word is used in Matthew chapter 14, verse 9, Matthew chapter 17, verse 23, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 22. And in various places, it is translated as distressed or sorrowful or sad. So again, to use Paul's own words, he was in labor to help believers mature. He wanted them to mature into freedom. Neither he nor the God that he's representing are using these words as a way to condemn believers, but as a way to help them see how they can grow and have more freedom. Here, the story of the prodigal son was brought up. It's not a matter of God sitting around bemoaning, oh, I had such plans for you, and you just keep messing them up and there's nothing I can do with you. But as soon as we turn to him, he is like the father of the prodigal son who picked up his robes in an undignified way and ran to meet his son. He was so glad to see him. Now, getting back particularly to the story of David, uh, it was highlighted that David had picked up five stones, presumably because Goliath had was one of five brothers. And so again, we have a balance or an example of the wisdom of preparation combined with acting in faith. The story of David and Goliath is very near the beginning of David's story, the record of his life in the Bible. And we are reminded that God knew his whole story from the beginning to the end, and yet he still said that David was a man after his own heart. And so we were discussing what does that mean that he was a man after God's own heart because he made some really big mistakes. Did it mean that he was always truly repentant and kept coming back to God? Does it mean that he always had a true love for God or that and or and that he always recognized and honored God and kept seeking out God. The Psalms do give us quite a lot of insight into David's heart, and someone likened them to his diary entries. So his heart, he all often started with his problems, and then he ended up praising or resting in his faith in who he knew God was, or some combination of all of that. But then we also have his actions where he was completely abandoned to praising God, like when the ark was brought back and he was ready to be totally humble in the face of his joyful praise and worship and excitement about what was going on with God. 
Then it was pointed out that Jesus was always most concerned about what went on in the heart, from the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the law, you know, talking about outward action, but God is really concerned about whether you hate your brother or whether you're seeking peace. Two other examples where Jesus says, would it be better to help somebody on the Sabbath or let them suffer? When we thought about examples of David purposefully seeking and trusting and having the sense of relationship with God, we remembered the incident where he was running from Saul and he needed something to eat. And in his need, he had absolutely no qualms about going into this holy place and taking some of the bread that was set aside. And he was never reprimanded for that at all. He was reprimanded to one degree or another for plenty of other things, including um, letting the ark be carried the wrong way and one of his friends or compatriots being killed to when he set up for the murder of Uriah. So God was very open with David when he was doing things that were wrong. Thus, it seems likely that this is an indication of the strength of David's relationship with God, that he understood the heart versus the law, that he understood that all of this with the temple and the sacrifices were there to lead people to God. And as such, he is an example of being confident in approaching God. In Psalm 73, verse 28, David uses a turn of phrase that is sometimes translated as, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. That is the New American Standard Bible version. In the King James Version, it is translated, but it is good for me to draw near to God. The World English Bible states it as, but it is good for me to come close to God, and then goes on to say, to end the psalm, I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And this psalm is an example of what I was talking about earlier, because he starts with, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no struggles in their death, but their strength is firm. They are free from burdens of men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride is like a chain around their neck, violence covers them like a garment. He goes on to describe them some more, but then when you get to verse 21, he says, For my soul was grieved, I was embittered in my heart. I was so senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have held my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom do I have in heaven? There is no one on earth whom I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But it is good for me to come close to God. I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In summary, when the heart is cleaned up, the choices and the behaviors change. That's why we are so grateful that God has allowed us by His grace and mercy to be born again and filled with His Spirit so He can work those things in us. We just have to come as a child and not cling to any religious pride of continuing with form 
or a ritual that makes us feel like we are doing something that makes us acceptable. He has done all of that. Finally, someone mentioned a fellow named Alfred Edersheim. And I'm probably not saying that quite right, but I tried. He was a rabbi in the late 1800s who became a Christian, became a believer. I had never heard of him, but I looked him up, and he is very well known. And one of his most appreciated books is called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And as one reviewer puts it on thriftbooks.com, and I will put a link to that on the blog post associated with this podcast. This classic work is a goldmine of information about the context of the Gospels. Many of the events and sayings of Jesus's become even clearer when we understand the widespread rabbinic teachings of his day. As I said at the beginning, we only got through the discussion about Samuel in Hour 7, which covers the life of David, all of the promises made to him, the mistakes he made, the consequences he dealt with. But as we said, even before any of this had transpired in our timeline, in David's timeline, God called him a man after his own heart. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 